0: Do you remember reading Divergent by Veronica Roth? So, I do remember reading Divergent. I actually had a hard time getting my hands on it. Mindy McGinnis is the author of young adult novels, Not a Drop to Drink, A Handful of Dust, and A Long Stretch of Bad Days. But at the time of Divergent's release, she was a librarian at a small school in Ohio. I also had that special guilt as a
1: librarian that comes when you have a book that everyone else wants to read and you take it
0: home. So I took it home and I read it, I think in about four hours. Divergent was part of a new era in young adult literature, one Mindy welcomed.
1: Floating out of the twilight and the paranormal romance arena, which was a relief for many of us. And we were rolling into something
0: different. We were rolling into Chicago, Veronica Roth's own home turf. I'm Lisa DeSaro, and this is not your grandmother's Chicago. Welcome to a dystopian future city where aptitude tests prove much more than a fun exercise. In Veronica Roth's distant Chicago, your aptitude is your people, your persona, even your profession.
2: Well, first of all, I love categories. I love them even now. That's Veronica. When I was younger, I loved personality tests, any that I could find. You know, this is the era of, like, the GeoCities website. And, like, online quizzes and, you know, entertaining yourself with the internet in a different way than we do now. So I was always interested in that. And I also always
0: gravitated toward books that had kind of categorization systems. For Veronica, those were books like Harry Potter with its Houses and Edner's Game with its Armies. Even the book The Giver bestows a profession on each person. In Divergent, individuals are sorted into five different factions based on their strengths. There's erudite for the intellectual, amity for the kind, candor for the honest, abnegation for the selfless, and dauntless for the brave. I feel like there was just something
2: about that, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have someone tell you who you are and where you belong?
0: All you have to do is take the test and voila, you have your faction. That's what's supposed to happen for Tris anyway, but things don't go as planned. Tris learns that she's divergent, meaning there's no one faction whose aptitudes she shares, but several. Tris has to decide for herself where she belongs. At the all-important choosing ceremony, she stands in front of two bowls, one for abnegation and one for dauntless. She makes her choice in a blood contract.
3: Gritting my teeth, I drag the blade down. It stings, but I barely notice. I hold both hands to my chest, and my next breath shudders on the way out. I open my eyes and thrust my arm out. My blood drips onto the carpet between the two bowls. Then, with a gasp I can't contain, I shift my hand forward, and my blood sizzles on the coals. I am selfish. I am brave.
0: Of course, choosing your family or your faction isn't the end-all be-all of coming of age, not even close.
2: Nobody's done coming of age. That's not a thing. That's why adults end up wanting to read YA, because there's a part of you that's always in high school.
0: For Mindy, those formative years helped shape her later experience of the YA genre.
1: I grew up in the 80s and most of the media that I was being exposed to with the possible exception of Wonder Woman, who of course didn't wear a lot of clothes, was women that were doing things that I was completely uninterested in doing. And I was always doing things that at that time were considered boy things. And in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of problem with identifying things as boy things or girl things, and that was detrimental to me for a lot of reasons
0: and for a lot of girls. Mindy was lucky, she says. She had parents who didn't care that she preferred quote-unquote boy things, but it would be a while before she saw that attitude reflected in young adult literature.
1: Divergent was one of the first books that I read in that area where I was seeing a female represented that I could identify with as an adult, but also I knew my students could read and identify with and not feel like they were being shamed or being talked down to or put into a corner.
0: And maybe it helps that Veronica writes Tris as a believably flawed character. In one revealing moment, Tris and her fellow Dauntless initiates are in their beds. They've all just found out that some of them will be condemned to a factionless life, relegated to the seedier edges of society. One fellow initiate named Al is weeping, and Triss is not impressed.
3: I should comfort him. I should want to comfort him, because I was raised that way. Instead, I feel disgust. Someone who looks so strong shouldn't act so weak. Why can't he just keep his crying quiet like the rest of us?
2: This is the exact encapsulation of the whole abnegation struggle, right? So she is reflecting in this moment how she's not fitting into the ideals of her former affection. She's not being selfless. She's not being kind or patient, as she's sort of been told she should be. But just the the framework of how she's analyzing herself in this moment is very abnegation. So it's like she can't escape that way of seeing the world, even while she realizes she's not living up to its ideals. So that is the entire purpose, I think, of this moment, is her realizing she's not the way she thought she was, but still, still, even then, being so well-formed by how she was raised that this is how
0: she sees the world. One of the hallmarks of the dystopian genre is a central character who pushes against the established order, and Triss is certainly that. Throughout her Dauntless initiation, Triss uncovers the dark underbelly of the faction system and the tyrants who wish to control it. But much of Triss' story is dedicated to confronting her fears using a futuristic kind of exposure therapy. Veronica got the idea from a psychology class four years before she wrote Divergent. It's just like a survey of
2: concepts in psychology. So we watched this video about exposure therapy where they showed a guy who's terrified of heights. You introduce people to their exposures slowly so they you know, put him on a, near a ledge in a shopping mall or in a glass elevator or, you know, just these things like the safe way to encounter his fear of heights to reprogram a little bit of that fear response. And I love that idea and I think it's got to be connected to me being anxious because it's like part of my brain thought what an interesting idea that in order to overcome this thing that is becoming more and more difficult to deal with I could just hurl myself into these situations (laughs) and that's like a legitimate way of addressing this. Disclaimer that's not what exposure therapy is. But that that was kind of the driving force behind the idea of creating these virtual realities where you can encounter fear, which of course they do now because VR has gotten better. So they use VR for exposure therapy,
0: especially with soldiers with PTSD. Veronica actually ended up doing exposure therapy herself after she wrote Divergent. It was like the book was a safe place for her to try it on before actually encountering it, she says. But even the most high-tech exposure therapy is not quite as futuristic as the simulations we see in the novel. In one of them, Tris finds herself in a field where she's attacked by a swarm of crows. It's one of her biggest fears, not crows exactly, but what they represent, a total loss of control. I asked Veronica how she came up with the idea for this simulation. So the way I came up with this fear
2: is that it's mine. <laughs> Not the crows specifically, but I think loss of control is like the underlying fear beneath many fears. So I think in that sense, it was the perfect choice. But she also
0: pulled inspiration from George Orwell's classic, 1984.
2: This was interesting. So. In 1984, if you've read it, there is a part where Winston is forced to face his own fear, which is that they torture him by putting a mask on his face, and then they, like, expose him to a bunch of rats via this rat
0: mask. In the novel, main character Winston is afraid of being eaten alive by rats. He's made to wear a cage-like contraption filled with the creatures in a bone-chilling torture scene. It is the worst. When Veronica was trying to choose how to visually represent Triss's biggest fear, naturally she thought of Orwell. Triss's fear simulation scenes were actually some of the first that Veronica wrote.
2: And so those scenes are very much like me getting to know her. But I asked my mother, you know, okay, if you were going to be like engulfed by a swarm of creatures, should I do rats? Should I do spiders? Should I do...
0: And she was like, what about birds? Veronica's mother had a visceral memory of her encounter with Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. Hence, Triss's fear simulation, (sighs) Crows.
2: She liked it because it wasn't as obvious as like a vermin or bugs or something. And I think that was a brilliant call by Barb. So hats off to Barb for that. And anything in a swarm, I think, is the worst. I mean, my recurring nightmares are about bug infestations so i think that's probably part of it too it's
0: like every time i'm stressed i get a bug dream mindy has her own fears ones that would become the basis for not a drop to drink if her sometimes alarmist nature wasn't enough to spur some dystopian world building a documentary by sam bazo called blue gold world water wars would be based on the book blue gold the fight to stop the corporate theft of the world's water by Maud Barlow and Tony Clark. The documentary details the likelihood of a water-scarce future where thirst reigns. It was just pure, abject terror because
1: I am a worst-case scenario type of person. If I text you and you don't answer me within 20 minutes, I assume that you are dead. This is how I work. So when I watched this documentary, I was like, okay, so that's it. This is how the world ends. We're all going to die and we're going to die from dehydration. And then I got to thinking about that Because I don't know how you die when you die from dehydration.
0: I'll spare you the details and just say, it's very bad. Extreme and prolonged thirst might be the worst way to go, Mindy tells me.
1: And so I was like, well, that's it. I'm not going out like that. I refuse. So I have a pond in my backyard. And I was thinking, okay, so if the world ends, I have got a source of water. And I even went so far as to, like, look up how I could purify it. Like, that night... That night, Mindy had her own fear-induced dream. And I was dreaming about my niece, who at the time was about five, and she was in the basement with me of my house, and I was teaching her how to operate a high-powered rifle so that she could help me snipe people from the roof of the house as soon as we saw them. And I woke up and I thought, oh, that's like terrible parenting, but what a cool idea for a book. and. This little girl who has her mother figure telling her water's more important than people. Our lives are more important than other people's lives. You see someone, you don't ask questions, you shoot them. And I was like, man, what is that little girl going to be like as she grows up?
0: And I started writing Not a Drop to Drink the next day. That little girl would become Lynn, our sympathetic but lethal protagonist. Her fears are Mindy's, a slow death of thirst among them. Not a Drop to Drink, Divergent, and many dystopian stories are born out of our own two familiar anxieties. I watched that documentary and I basically, you know, went completely
1: overboard with my what ifs and my anxiety ran wild and I made plans for a possible future,
0: this worst case scenario, and that's just how I operate. And that's where most of my books come from, actually. The dystopian novel pulls fear into focus, demanding a minimum of survival from its characters but even existential threats can't wipe out the possibility of one common piece of YA literature, romance. Triss's romantic interest, the older, attractive young man who is so mysteriously named Four, isn't here just to fulfill some rescuer fantasy. In one particularly vulnerable moment, Four takes Triss through his own fear simulation, where together they witness the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father. And in this moment of vulnerability, They are, perhaps, the most in love.
2: That's always what they're supposed to be to each other. Like, the the person that the other person can be safe with.
0: I mean, that's romance to me, I guess. Romantic storylines sometimes run the risk of falling flat, depending on how the characters are written. Sometimes a main character is overly passive, or a love interest too idealized, to feel like anything is at stake. But that's not true of Tris or Four.
2: I think often in stories, you do get a sense of why the love interest is appealing because you're in the head of the protagonist, so that's what you need to understand the most. But I often felt like in stories that I was exposed to with a strong love story, I didn't understand why the love interest would reciprocate. Not necessarily, because it's not like I don't sympathize with the character, but it's like, well, what what has this person seen of the main character? Is it primarily that they just are vulnerable and in need of protection? Or are they doing something, saying something, thinking something interesting? I think this was a big part of it for me. It's just because we're in her head doesn't mean that I don't have to consider the way that other people are reacting to her and what they see of her. But she's not supposed to be that physically attractive. She's not like a hottie. And he, you know, he's older and he's
0: a hottie. So it's like, why does he love her? It's like, because she's awesome. (laughs) This was intentional on Veronica's part. Not one of those moves in a book that just happens or reveals itself to the writer in the writing process. She wanted to push back against one particular romantic cliche. The dynamic between Triss and Forer
2: is very much established for me as like a way to escape this like hero rescues the girl thing. That was especially prevalent in all the books I was reading growing up. You either read about a boy or you read about a girl getting rescued. There is not a lot outside of that. I'm not someone who wants to be rescued. (laughs) And
0: neither is Tris, for that matter. It's a feature Lynn shares, too, though Minty's approach to teen romance is a bit different from Veronica's. I just really felt like everyone gets
1: somewhat frustrated with me when I'm writing any type of romantic relationship because I don't buy into insta-love and I don't buy into happily ever after. People are like, oh my God, but they were so in love. And I'm like, dude, this is literally the first boy she has ever met. She has never even seen a male her age. So yeah, she's into him. Like, are they fated for each other? No, they were
0: geographically close. That's what happened. It's a pragmatic approach and it gets Eli, Lynn's love interest, killed. Not everyone liked that but there's good reason to kill off a character the audience is rooting for. Mindy uses the Lord of the Rings as an example. As I got older, I was like, you know, there's seven
1: people that essentially walk into hell, and only one of them dies. And I'm like, you know, I guess Mortar like can't actually be that bad if only one of you out of seven dies. That's not a bad ratio. That is like
0: better than Little House on the Prairie, really. We're not shaming Tolkien, but Mindy's right. Removing death as a real option for characters, especially the ones we actually like, no offense, Boromir, can make the story feel a little bit sterile. There are those who disagree. From time to time, YA comes under fire from some critics for being too dark. I have been
2: exposed to this criticism quite a few times, and that's why I'm laughing, because I always want to say to parents like do you remember being this age because the world is dark. <laughs> Teenagerdom is dark. It does it does presume a, a level of safe idyllic childhood that I don't think most teenagers have. Um it's like well maybe your kid is perfectly safe and loved and doesn't encounter any of these dark things in their own life, but that is not every child. And Books are for everyone, not just your kid. But I also think even if you are growing up like perfectly kind of safe and contained, books are a safe place to explore the darkness in the world.
0: Veronica believes that books are the perfect place to explore without having to do. But those who criticize YA don't always value the inner lives of young people, let alone the inner lives of girls and young women. You know, everything
2: that's for young women is, like, always has to be a guilty pleasure, right? If people enjoy it, it's like, oh, it's my guilty pleasure read or my guilty pleasure watch. And I just hate that phrase so much. Like, you wouldn't be saying that if, if primarily men were at like, judging you for watching it or reading it. But I do think it's changing. It's a lot different than it used to be as far as just letting the inner lives of young women be important and significant. But we are still especially hard on women protagonists, Veronica says. You see a lot of books criticized for their main character being too stupid to live. This is like a phrase. And it's always about women, right? Like women making impulsive decisions at 16. Who knew that also happens? Or, you know,
0: teenage young women acting like teenagers. Imagine that. I always want to push back against that. The central characters of Mindy's new mystery, A Long Stretch of Bad Days, show the inner lives of teenage girls in all their complexity. Lydia Chass, the valedictorian type at a small-town school, is fiercely ambitious. In an attempt to perfect her high school transcript for college applications, she decides to make a hard-hitting podcast about a dark moment in her hometown's history. They call it the long stretch of bad days, a devastating week during which they had a tornado, a flood, and the only murder in the town's history. Of course, When Lydia teams up with the foul-mouthed Bristol Jameson, their dynamic creates a riotously funny take on the investigative whodunit. But the plot isn't all hilarity. To make this podcast a gem for her resume, Lydia has to get to the truth about what really happened 30 years ago. And she's going to have to open up a lot of old wounds in her community to do it. But that's sort of the point. It's what makes Lydia's bravery so relatable. She's not afraid to make other people uncomfortable.
1: And that is an interesting skill in a female because we are definitely raised to keep the party flow going, right? Make sure everybody's getting along. Don't ask rude questions. Make sure that everybody is kind and everything is cohesive. And that is kind of a a female skill that we're taught. Keep everything at a nice rolling flow socially. And that's not Lydia's role. Like her role is to ask people the questions where the answers are uncomfortable and possibly illegal as well, but also put herself in harm's way by doing that and by being curious about these things that uh, other people don't want her asking questions about. She's out there trying to bring justice to the world by asking questions and
0: Bristol's out there trying to bring justice by throwing punches. Or at least put herself in harm's way to protect someone else. Veronica gives us an alternative definition of bravery though in a moment between four and Tris.
3: He says, I have a theory that selflessness and bravery aren't all that different. All your life you've been training to forget yourself. So when you're in danger, it becomes your first instinct.
0: But it was Veronica's personal experience with anxiety that informed that definition. One of the things that I've noticed over the years of having profound
2: anxiety is that it makes you very selfish. So, the way that you perceive situations, even like if you have social anxiety, it's like, oh, everyone was looking at me. Like, no, they weren't. <laughs> they absolutely weren't. No one is focusing on you. That's one of the things my mother used to tell me. Like, no one's thinking about you as much as you are. She meant this kindly, like, you don't need to worry about it. Nobody is thinking about it. And so I think fear made me, you know, self-protective and that moments of selflessness felt like bravery because I had to step outside my anxiety
0: and do something, you know, for other people. Fear and anxiety are universal. They always have been, though we're only beginning to talk more publicly about that. And while some people may think of YA as a girls and women only genre, Mindy can tell you from experience that it's not.
1: I'm just telling universal stories, I think, and everyone can probably connect with them in some way. It's not meant for any one person. The Female of the Species, in particular, is a book that
0: is about rape culture, and I definitely wrote it as a validation of women's rage. Mothers and daughters often write to Mindy to tell her that they read her 2016 page-turner, The Female of the Species, together. And then they can have mother-daughter conversations
1: about things like rape and sexual assault and how you handle those situations but had the coolest email one day a mom had emailed me and she said i wanted to tell you that i buddy read the female of the species with my son and he was so surprised she said we had this whole conversation where he was like i never thought about the fact Mom, that you walk outside and you walk down the street and you got to hope or wonder or worry if you're going to get hurt or attacked. And he was like, I never, I never thought the world that way. And she's like, yeah, you don't have to.
0: The female of the species is for boys, too, and it creates an opportunity for readers to have some difficult conversations about how men and women experience the dating world differently. But while the book explores the horrors of violence against women, it also emphasizes their power, in case you didn't take the hint from the title. She borrowed it from the Rudyard Kipling poem of the same title. Everything
1: I was seeing represented in media, television, books, and movies was the total opposite of that. The female of the species is the victim of the male. And when I read that line, the female of the species is more deadly than the male, I was like, hell yeah. And I wanted to roll with that, and I kind of did for the rest of my life.
0: Maybe we aren't all as deadly as Lynn or Triss or Bristol, or maybe even Mindy for that matter. She can, after all, catch and kill her dinner if she needs to. But everybody's got little brave moments, Veronica tells me. Just maybe not dauntless brave. I think I'd
2: love to be braver than I am. But as far as my faction, I have no idea. The system's terrible. I don't want to
0: join it. Sounds bad, actually. Of course it's sometimes the bad stuff that readers connect with the most. Veronica says those moments can even act as lifelines to some readers. Every so often, a reader will share with me
2: that something in the books that was maybe a little more serious, maybe related to kind of the abusive relationship with Tobias and his father or with Tris losing her parents or with PTSD. I heard from a social worker once who was a veteran who had really enjoyed the books. And so those moments when... You know, I do try to take that stuff seriously, but you're in science fiction and fantasy. So there's a layer of remove and I'm always trying to be aware of that when I'm exploring serious things. So when you hear that you've done something right, not that there's one way to do it right, but that you connected with someone who has a personal experience of those harder things in life, that's like, sorry, sorry, that's really, you know, it becomes really emotional. Like it's really good. It's a relief to hear that. So those are the encounters with readers that I really
0: value the most. Yes, dystopias get dark, and sure, the subject matter can get heavy, but isn't that as much true of this world? Fictional dystopias don't create fear so much as they validate it. And isn't that what we want as young people, and even later, as adults, to be validated, whether in our fears or our pain or our happiness? YA lets us explore, without threat of rejection, what we most wish to understand or even accept, ourselves. And once we've done that, what is it that we have left to fear? Well, maybe swarms of bugs, but you get the idea. Tell us what you think on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins, Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Julie Yater, Elba Luz, and Ben Rosenthal. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Lisa Desaro. Thanks for listening.